The collection of stories has been compared to a Midwestern potluck dinner with jello salads at one end of the table, hot dishes in the middle, and pumpkin bars at the end, abundant and homemade. The stories range from light-hearted reflections to sports to tales of labor unrest and racial strife with a couple of shipwrecks and urban renewal along the way. It is indeed a smorgasbord of Milwaukee history, served up by longtime Milwaukee Journal Sentinel columnist John Goethe in his book, Brewtown Tales, published by the Wisconsin Historical Society in 2022. I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Air. With me is John Goethe. Welcome to University of the Air. I'm glad to be here, Norman. Thank you. Would you describe yourself as a lifetime Milwaukee resident? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Four <laughs> years away, went to college in Boston. Spent six years in D.C., otherwise Milwaukee's been home. And did you have a sense growing up as to the changing of the city and the history that was fading in some places and maybe being rejuvenated in others? No, I was, I was an English major. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, was, I was not uh, perhaps subliminally paying, paying attention to those changes, but it wasn't until after college that I began to get into history. Uh, but my, my parents... My mom's from Coon Valley, Wisconsin. Uh, my dad's from the south side of Milwaukee, so I consider myself bi-coastal, you know, Lake Michigan and the Mississippi. Uh, and they both spoke their languages, Norwegian and Polish. And so I was always raised kind of in the, 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 the atmosphere of ethnicity, which is certainly a, a Milwaukee and a Wisconsin uh, trait. Do you have to say Milwaukee as opposed to Milwaukee? Milwaukee. How, it, how does that play I, out? I think I've been there long enough to, to do it two syllables, but I, but I know better. <laughs> it should be Milwaukee, but we always we use, uh, re- remove the L. Before we get into these wonderful uh, essays of yours, these uh, I'll, I'll call them anecdotes for lack of a better word at hand, give us some background as to how Milwaukee came together. What are the parts and where do they come from? It is... Uh, Certainly a, a long history. It was a native settlement of some importance and for thousands of years going back to when the last glacier left. But if you kind of fast forward to the, the more European influence present, the reason Milwaukee exists is it had the best natural harbor on the western shore of Lake Michigan. No, Chicago not accepted. So at a time when everybody got to this part of the world by water, you no, know, Milwaukee had the kind of the favored urban uh, location. And was neck and neck with Chicago for about 15 years until railroads came. Uh, so this this was, Milwaukee was kind of the, the opportunity, um, the, the Wisconsin shore of Lake Michigan. So if you kind of follow the progression of Milwaukee's, uh, the, the growth, it was sort of three gears. The first gear is shipping. Milwaukee was a, the outlet for all the agricultural, not all, but a, a great portion of Wisconsin's agricultural output. The largest wheat port in the entire world back in the early 1860s. And then it shifted to second gear, which was processing agricultural materials. So, you know, uh, wheat to flour and animals to meat and, uh, and hides, uh, ore to, to iron. So you have that kind of secondary uh, kind of growth there. And then manufacturing was third gear. You know, the, the content was, was intellectual, engineering content. So as Milwaukee grew in that economic you know, kind of ladder, uh, people came in response to jobs. So, and a great many of them, the majority of them were immigrants, you know, especially from Europe. So Milwaukee by 1860 was the most German city in the entire country. A majority of the population was German. But it was not solely uh, German. You, know, you have back in those early years uh, the Irish and then later on Poles and Italians. And then, again, in response to industry, you have Latinos and African Americans coming to Milwaukee in the 1920s uh, and later. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the quick, you know, kind of the, the, the Cliffsnose versions of, version of Milwaukee's uh, economic growth and social growth. Uh, it became a very heavily Catholic city because of all the immigrants, you know, the Poles, the Italians, the Irish, and many of the Germans. Uh, so that's still a, a very important part of Milwaukee's character. And then you have uh, the deindustrialization of the early 1980s, uh, which really uh, slammed especially communities of color in Milwaukee, who were the, the last hired and the first fired is what it amounted to. And you have, uh, as is so, it's the case for so many northern industrial cities. You know, you have entrenched poverty, uh, which is certainly a, a challenge for Milwaukee and its and its peers. You know, the Clevelands and uh, Cincinnati's and St. Paul's and Minneapolis's even uh, of the world. So that's that's the shorthand for Milwaukee's evolution. Where did the uh, real prosperity begin? 
Uh, it began with the agricultural wealth of Wisconsin uh, needing an outlet for uh, the markets of the world and also a place to import all the finished goods of the world. And Milwaukee became that point of exchange. So that was Milwaukee's first uh, source of wealth. And the only symbol, or the only substance, rather, of uh, that uh, stage in Milwaukee's history is the Grain Exchange, you know, which is w- that wonderful building you know, down there on Broadway in Michigan, which was g- neglected, uh, forlorn, uh, just abused, actually, and restored back in 1983. And now it's proms and weddings. Uh, but back then, it was the nerve center of Milwaukee's economy when Milwaukee was a player in the, in the global commodities exchanges. And, of course, the, the glorious city hall. Absolutely. And that's 1895, uh, down there, 200 East Wells. And that I've described as a, a deep bow to Milwaukee's Teutonic roots. You know, you have the steppe gables and the gargoyles, very much. They call it Flemish Renaissance, you know, but it's a, a very Germanic architectural style. Uh, Milwaukee's first million-dollar building and among the tallest masonry structures in the world, you know, when it was built back in 1895. One of the themes that we're going to come across from time to time in your stories is the story of salvaging, repurposing. Mm-hmm. And that, that, was, that was whole cloth. You know, that was uh, built from scratch. There are uh, other buildings. Uh, the, the greenest building in Milwaukee, although LEED did not exist you know, when it was built, is St. Joseph's Basilica uh, down there in 6th and Lincoln on the south side, which is a Polish congregation, and it was built with stone salvaged from the Chicago Post Office. So after the fire, after the no, not, not after the fire. It's later than that. Uh, even back then, there were uh, s- sort of irregularities in contracts, you know, in Cook County, and they built this post office and custom house, uh, and it began falling apart as soon as they opened the doors. Uh, so it was shoddily constructed. So they decided to, re- to to tear it down and build something new. So the pastor of the church was down there buying bricks for what was supposed to be a brick and terracotta church. He found out that they were uh, tearing down this, this gloriously, at least material, material-wise, building, all this Indiana limestone, uh, or sandstone, rather. And he said, huh, I can get a deal. And the, the, the story is he got the whole thing for $20,000, but then it took, what, something like 500 flat cars to bring it all up to Milwaukee. Uh, so it probably cost more you know, to disassemble and, and cart it up and reassemble it uh, than it would have to, to you know, start from scratch. Uh, but certainly that would be lead platinum, you know, if there had been such a thing back in 1901 when the building was finished. Let's get into uh, the part of Milwaukee history that you personally, John Gerda, have experienced, and that gets us into the 19, well, the 1950s, if you want to go back to uh, a sports highlight. Uh, the Milwaukee Braves. You know, I was, I was a kid. I was born in 47, so I was 10 years old uh, when the, the Braves won uh, the World Series. And... I was old enough by that time to be collecting baseball cards and trading them with friends, uh, flipping them. You know, it's kind of this game where you try to you know, just uh, uh, completely eliminate your <laughs> your, your opponent's stock. Uh, I, I had a we all did. We I had a shoebox full of cards, and my mom threw them away. I probably could have gotten a year of college out a of that. Cliche, but it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the so time. it's a true all the time. Uh, but that was. Uh, certainly a high point uh, in in Milwaukee's history. We were among the smallest, uh, or rather among the largest cities who didn't have a major league team. Uh, so this this was sort of precedent setting. You know, you have the Boston Braves moving uh, in 53. And just four years later, Milwaukee wins, wins the World Series. You know, talk about a, a, a crescendo. Uh, so that was... Uh, it was, I guess the word is giddy. Milwaukee was giddy, you know, when, when we won. And as I tell in the book, uh, I went to St. Mary's and Hills Corners. I grew up in the south side. They moved out to the southwest suburbs. Uh, and there were a couple of day games, and they actually canceled classes and took us all down to the lunchroom and black and white TVs, <laughs> maybe an out of a 12-inch screen. <laughs> it was bigger than that at that time. The, the biggest TV the nuns could find. Uh, and, we, and we watched the, the Braves uh, you know, take on the Yankees and, and uh, cheered rapidly. So that probably wouldn't happen today. <laughs> and as we get into the 1960s, though, your experience is very different in Milwaukee. Yeah, you have uh, certainly you have two things going on. Uh, to the shorthand is, is flower power and black power. You know, both those things going on at the same time in this society uh, and in Milwaukee certainly as well. 
and I graduated from high school in 65. You have during that period, 1966, you have the rise, the first actual uh, civil actions of Father James Grappi as a, a prominent civil rights leader. And the first cause there before open housing was the Eagles Club, which was a very prominent uh, men's fraternal group. It had, as I described it, perhaps a quorum of Milwaukee County judges. It had a Caucasians-only membership policy. And these judges are sitting in judgment you know, of, of, of black defendants. So it seems today obvious you know, that that would be uh, way beyond you know, the bounds of either morality or legality. And Father Grappi and the NAACP Youth Council, uh, certainly there, were, there was strong black leadership as well, uh, began to protest. And one night uh, during those protests, the, the Youth Council commandos had decided to picket the home of Judge Robert Cannon uh, in the, the suburb of Wauwatosa. And I honestly don't recall what I was, was doing on the way back from being with friends or a date or something, but I came across a line of march and ended up saying, well, you can, you're either with him or you're not, or against him, you know, so implicitly, and joined the march, and was one of very few white kids uh, in that the youth council, largely young people, marching out to Wauwatosa. Uh, it was, it was, I guess the word is searing, you know, certainly a searing experience. Uh, we marched around for an hour in front of Judge Cannon's house, and then marched back to the city, and by that time, there had been enough publicity uh, that the there were, there, were, there were hundreds of people, you know, kind of uh, on both sides of the line of march. And we were protected by a phalanx of National Guardsmen in full riot gear with their rifles and bayonets fixed. And one of the leaders, uh, you know, sort of, here's a white kid, you know, a black young person as well. He had us carry the American flag, you know, and I'm sure looking at the symbolism, you know, kind of black and white together. Uh, and we marched right behind. We were right at the point of that phalanx of guardsmen. And all along that line of march, uh, there were, were young people especially taunting, uh, you know, sort of hurling these racial epithets, including at me. Uh, so it was, uh, as I described it, it was uh, among the times when I felt most scared, uh, most proud, and, and most excited, kind of all at the same time. Uh, so it really was a powerful experience. Did you have a sense of progress uh, when the dust settled? Uh, yes, but slowly. You know, the Eagles Club did finally change that policy, uh, and Father Grappi moved on to uh, the open housing with the NAACP Youth Council. Uh, so yes, there was progress, but as, as you well know, that progress has been glacially slow, you know, in, uh, certainly in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the United States as well. How did your uh, your parents feel about your participation in these events? I'm not sure I told them. <laughs> <laughs> the publicity or the media coverage didn't go that no, far. No, huh? I guess I guess not. You know, the, I think the photographers were scared too. Uh, there's one side note to that experience. There was a actually a football player. I went to Boston College. I went back to uh, school that fall, not long after the the march. Uh, and he's a big guy, football player, bulk, all bulked up. Bulked up. Uh, and I was on my dorm floor, so I knew him. He's from Milwaukee, uh, so I knew him. And I said, uh, hi, hi, Dick, haven't seen you for a while. He said, I saw you. <laughs> and so this icy stare. Uh, and that, that, end that, of friendship? That end of that friendship, yep. <laughs> a lot of your stories in the book are about, uh, well, let's say they'll be... Uh, symbolized by what you call the scrap heap of history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see the old giving way to the new, not always gracefully. Right. Yeah, there was one, one case, uh, it was actually a, uh, the, the essay is about a visit to a junkyard uh, in the Sherman Park, which is this, this great neighborhood in Milwaukee's sort of near, near northwest side. And that area has the highest concentration in Milwaukee of bungalows, uh, period revivals, and kind of the, the early years of the you know, kind of the mid-century modern. So it's a, it's a great architectural uh, sort of a, a treasure house of, of styles from the period roughly 1910 to 1950. And the history on the scrap heap is the title of the of the essay. And What's going on in that neighborhood, as in so many others, is especially after the 20, 27 to 20, 2007 to 2009 recession, uh, a lot of foreclosures, uh, a lot of subprime mortgages you know, were sold to that neighborhood, which is kind of a mixed neighborhood, black and white. Uh, and 
people lost their homes, and as they lost them, as they were foreclosed, a lot of them became vacant, and they were being just hit by scrappers, uh, just tearing out the, the gutters, uh, the, the, the copper tubes. Radiators. Radiators, you know, sinks, just whatever they can haul to the scrap heap. Uh, so it was, uh, it was sobering, and that was... In terms of actual reporting, this this was not research. This was not going to the library and reading. You know, I spent I spent a number of days just on the ground, biking and, and walking around, and talking to scrappers and visiting the scrapyard. Uh, so it was, uh, it it felt like uh, about the the most thorough job of reporting I've done. You know, for a history column. <laughs> biking maybe the best way to do your kind of uh, research. Oh, biking's great. You know, I, I, I'm still an avid biker. Uh, have have been for a long time. And the wonderful thing about biking uh, is that you can cover ground but see things at the same time. Uh, so it's uh, a, a more absorbing pace than walking, uh, but uh, much slower than cars. So it's, 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 that's my preferred medium. I put on probably 1,500 miles a year, which is uh, a lot less than some of my friends. But uh, I, I love biking, especially since I got a new knee. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard stories. You have one uh, one great story about um, a house that has been, uh, from its beginning, was a grand old house on Grand Avenue. Right. Mm-hmm. And has been repurposed, uh, again, not necessarily in the most <laughs> graceful way, and yet it's still there in some form. Yeah, I would always wonder what that house was. It's on 25th and Wisconsin Avenue uh, on the west side of Milwaukee's downtown. And I drive past it, and you don't you don't notice it at first. What you see is there's the a series of storefronts. Uh, there's a check cashing place. There's a golden chicken outlet. Uh, there was a barber shop, and behind it uh, is this sort of brownstone mansion uh, that has been kind of encased, like like barnacles, <laughs> kind of surrounding the lower level uh, of this mansion. So I finally, uh, it's one of the nice things about having the column was being able to kind of sort of follow my nose and you know, kind of uh, answer questions I had. And it turned out to have been the mansion of a guy named Gerhard Winner, who was a, a liquor merchant, liquor, liquor wholesaler, a German immigrant who did just fine, you know, made, made a lot of money. And at the time, he built that home uh, back in the 1890s. Grand Avenue, Wisconsin Avenue was Grand Avenue, and that's where the grand homes were. Uh, the, the one that people know about is on 20th and Wisconsin, which is the Paps Mansion, you know, that was about as opulent uh, a home as you can find in Milwaukee or this entire region. Not quite Newport, uh, but <laughs> in, in that ballpark, kind of you know, aspiring to that level. Uh, so that one's, that one's open to the public. The Wisconsin Club, the old Alexander Mitchell home, uh, still obviously very, very much there and very much in operation. Uh, but the winter home has uh, been pretty much abandoned. And I mean, talk about a fall from grace. Uh, this had been you know, the home of a wealthy Milwaukeean and his domestic staff. And as he moves on and the street's fortunes change, uh, it was, uh, there was an addition was put on and it was a used car lot. So. <laughs> That's um, about as radical a change as you could expect. And back in those days, used cars, it, it was indoors. It was a showroom. Uh, so in this little kind of a, I don't know, sort of a terrace kind of around uh, the, the outside of the house. Uh, but, but integral, you know, it was, it was part of the, the structure. And then that became Hi-Fi Faux Fum, which was a, a finely remembered uh, stereo component store. And uh, it became the home, the home itself, you know, all, all the, you know, the, the wonderful woodwork and the, the, the fixtures were all stripped. And uh, it, it became early on and remains kind of a, a, essentially a rooming house. It's kind of a, uh, strikes me as being a kind of a history of Milwaukee all in one building <laughs> as you're going from, you know, a liquor baron, a German immigrant to, you know, the 60s, 70s hi-fi. Right. And, you know, there's like a karate uh, school in there and these things that are, you know, again, from later years. It's, right. But it's all in one kind of eclectic building the way you're describing it. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the the trajectory is more. You know, Milwaukee's been much more yin yang. You know, good things, bad things. This was this was more a fall from grace. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to look further at some of these stories and uh, places and incidents from Milwaukee when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with my guest John Gerda. He's the author of Brewtown Tales: More Stories from Milwaukee and Beyond, published in 2022 by the Wisconsin Historical Society. 
and uh, trove, you might say, of stories, collections of his columns that he wrote for the newspapers in Milwaukee over the course of some period of time. We've looked at uh, how the city has uh, changed over the years and some of the remnants, you might say, of the earlier years and how they've been uh, repurposed and in some cases uh, restored. And uh, there's a, a wonderful story, at least from the outside, about a bridge that doesn't go anywhere, the bridge to nowhere. Is For three a, years. <laughs> is, is that another uh, example of something that's been repurposed? No, it's more, it's, it's, the, it's a story about urban infrastructure. This is the Dan Hone Bridge over Milwaukee Harbor. Uh, and it was for three years the bridge to nowhere from 74 to 77. And the backstory is interesting. This was the last gasp of the freeway era in Milwaukee. And the Lake Freeway, that this would have been a, a vital link in, would have taken about 535 homes on the South Shore and would have just ripped through Juneau Park on the other side of the bridge. And that, that is holy ground for Milwaukeeans. No, that is the, our most cherished open space. So by that time, even though there had been a real groundswell of support for the freeway system, by that time, people are starting to realize it's real cost in terms of loss of tax base, displacement of residents, uh, destruction of landmarks. So you have a very spirited uh, opposition arising uh, for, to preserve the park on one side and to save the South Shore on the other side. So that really slowed down uh, the, the progress of that section of the freeway. But there was no one on Jones Island where the bridge eventually went uh, to, to oppose it. So the commissioners, in their wisdom, said, okay, we'll build a bridge anyway. <laughs> and, and, and they built it to federal highway standards. This is a six-lane six lane road. Uh, so it was uh, certainly uh, gargantuan. And by that time, you know, they finished in 74, and the, the freeway was eventually demapped on both sides. So you have this bridge to nowhere right in the middle. And there were talk, talk about turning it into a skateboard park. <laughs> that would uh, be a pretty uh, elaborate <laughs> skateboard park. Very much. A tourist promenade. Uh, and where it saw the most uh, public use was a, a famous scene from the Blues Brothers movie where they had the car, car <laughs> put a launching off an unfinished ramp. That was part of the, the home bridge uh, interchange on the north side. Uh, and then finally, uh, after about three years, uh, People in, in I live in a, the Bayview neighborhood in the southeast side, which is where the the bridge comes down to the south. And people they kind of resented being the bridge to nowhere. You know, this is someplace, a real community. What was the plan for the freeway in the first place? I'm still trying to get that figured out as to what the whole context was. This a whole concept that was just abandoned, or or was it repurposed like other things? Not so much repurposed. Uh, the, the 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 artery, you know, kind of the, the main line there is, is Interstate 94, the high rise bridge over the Menominee Valley that I worked on. You know, a, a summer uh, in college, it was a, the the summer the summer of '68, and the. The Hone Bridge was intended as kind of a, to take pressure off and be kind of an alternative uh, to the, the main line of, of 94. So it was uh, part of a, a larger system. You know, the term they used was inter-distributor loop. Uh, you know, so you have those kind of one ring, still rings Milwaukee. You're talking about taking some of that down, down <laughs> as well. Uh, so you have you know, the, the Hone Bridge there as part of, you know, not the central part of the, the freeway system, but, but an important part. Uh, and it would have eventually you know, hooked up with uh, sort of an alternative to 94 South as well. It would have gone a little closer to the lakeshore. Uh, it would have been part of a system connecting Milwaukee with Chicago and Racine and, and Kenosha. Uh, so people on the, the South Shore and the, the authorities finally said, we got this bridge. You know, it's, maybe it's overbuilt, but we've got to finish it off. So they put on and off ramps on both the north and the south ends, and it was like connecting an oil pipeline to a garden hose. You know, so <laughs> you're, you're coming right down to residential streets, and all of a sudden you have a lot of traffic. So some know. serious merging when you get to the end of it? Serious merging and a lot of jams, a lot mm -hmm. of traffic jams. Uh, so Bayview, uh, I was part of the task force that recommended something called the, the Lake, Lake Parkway. Uh, there's a whole lot more way than park in it. <laughs> but that opened, I think, in 99, uh, and that relieved, relieved the pressure and took, took only six houses. Uh, so that was, 
And we, there was a caucus kind of on this task force that said, well, if you got to have it, it's got to look pretty. So we kind of uh, held the line for some, uh, some more aesthetic amenities than you might have on a typical freeway system. Uh, so it's kind of a, uh, overbuilt, somewhat underused, uh, but monumental nonetheless. And one thing that's been a kind of a repurposing of that bridge is just a couple of years ago. Uh, a couple of, of millennials who were uh, looking for something to, to accent the positive in Milwaukee and kind of make make a, a, a spectacle of the bridge. Uh, the, the project's called Light the Hone, and uh, they, they got, I'm not sure what the, the million, multi-million dollar budget, but they raised the funds, got uh, a sign-off from the Depart- Department of Transportation, which was not that easy, you know. <laughs> and the result was that there is in the, the main arch and the first two kind of spans of the bridge. From the, the land side, it is a programmable light show, and it's on every single night. Uh, they will put on... Uh, you know, blue and uh, blue and gold for for the Brewers, uh, green and gold for the Packers. Uh, they'll have shows where they can program the site. They're they're all LEDs, and they can uh, just uh, this infinite rainbow of colors and patterns. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you can, they, they, it, it will program to music, you know, so you can kind of watch uh, watch your own light show there. Uh, Is this something the people in the neighborhood can just kind of watch? Anybody endlessly? Anybody. Uh, so it's the. Uh, the neighborhood that it faces is largely non-residential, although that's changing. Uh, but you can see it from the whole south side and downtown. So it's uh, the it's it's a nice it's a nice way to repurpose, you know, what had been uh, in the early years perhaps a, a mistake. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, getting things pushed through, I have to ask about government in politics mm-hmm. in Milwaukee. Very different from any other comparable size city. Absolutely. Uh, and one, one of the things that makes Milwaukee unique is its political history. And you have this confluence of a large German population, including the 48ers who came over with this intellectual tradition of, of anti-royalism and sort of principles of democracy. You have a huge working class population, uh, about 57% uh, by the, the turn of the, of the 20th century. Uh, and you have uh, this this huge you know, kind of manufacturing establishment, so you have you know the, the intellectual currents, the ethnic currents, and kind of the the demographics to provide uh, really fertile soil for the growth of socialism, you know, which, which is what happened. And it's kind of the same in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, socialism is kind of the S word in American politics, yes. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, because these guys were good. You know, they, they were excellent governors. Uh, and they were a lot like the Social Democrats uh, in Europe today. Uh, so uh, certainly uh, carriers of the standard of, re- of reform, and Milwaukee needed reforming back then. We had a mayor named David Rose who was a crook you know, for about 10 years. That's the, more the like the, every other comparable <laughs> every city. city. Back in the Gilded Age, you know, it was kind of, you know, you have, you know, everything was for sale. You, know, you could buy a, an alderman's vote for five bucks for a suit of clothes. Costs uh, more than that now, at it least. Would, it would, <laughs> adjusting for inflation. Uh, but you have the this movement uh, growing, and kind of the, the guiding spirit there was a man named Victor Berger, who was uh, an, an Austrian, uh, came over as a newspaper editor, taught German, and he was uh, someone who was certainly theoretically up to speed, uh, but the left in America has always been sort of famously fractious. <laughs> you know, have this this splintering. You know, sort of self self division and self conquering. <laughs> True, in, in some ways. So you have uh, Berger who says, you know, theory sure, but let, let's win some elections. You know, you're you're, you're going to educate by governing. So he put together a, a coalition of of labor unions and party members who were in time an interlocking directorate. You know, the leaders of one were the same as the leaders of the other. So we had the, the foot soldiers in a way, uh, the intellectual leaders as well, began to run candidates for office back in 1898. And you know, the, the, the tide kept rising. You know, in 1910, a pattern maker named Amos Seidel became Milwaukee's first socialist mayor. Uh, and they won about a two-thirds majority of the Common Council. Uh, Victor Berger went to Congress. Uh, so you have this, it was a landslide. It was just a landslide. And Presumably, they were doing some good work along the way. They were doing some great work, and what happened was that they, uh, the the term they used was public enterprise, and enterprise was very intentionally chosen. It, it was as enterprising as any red red blooded capitalist, but it was for the public good. 
You know, so, so public parks. That's why Milwaukee has such a great public park system. Public schools, public port, public natatoria, public housing back in those early years, back in, as early as the 1920s. Uh, so people learned to trust them. And despite the, the constant red baiting that you had in the part of the main parties, Republican as well as Democrat, uh, you have these guys uh, really earning the trust of the, the people. So Dan Hone is mayor from 1916 to 1940, 24 years, and then Frank Zeidler uh, from 48 to 60, whose who's obituary, or eulogy rather, is in the, in the book. I got a, had the honor of speaking at his funeral. So for most of 50 years, Milwaukee has socialist mayors. This is not a fluke, by no, by no, no means a fluke. And what they did very simply uh, is they, they turned Milwaukee around. They turned what had been just kind of this boss-ridden, uh, thoroughly corrupt, everything for sale, uh, civic seat of, of government into a paragon of civic virtue. We're going to look at Milwaukee from the water mm-hmm. when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with my guest, John Goethe, the author of Brewtown Tales, More Stories from Milwaukee and Beyond, published in 2022 by the Wisconsin Historical Society. One of the points that you make uh, quite strongly in the book is that Milwaukee is a, a water city. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's a, I wrote a book for the, uh, the press, the Historic Society Press, called Milwaukee, a City Built on Water. And did a, an hour-long documentary from Milwaukee PBS as well. Uh, so absolutely, you no know, water was how people got to Milwaukee. Uh, water moved the turbines of industry when Milwaukee began to make things. Uh, water was the the most uh, abundant ingredient in beer as Milwaukee became the brewing capital of America. Uh, and did everything else from you know sort of uh, cleansing hides in the tanning industry to cooling machines for all the, the machine shops in Milwaukee. So water's played an essential role. Recreation as well. You know, there was uh, above the North Avenue Dam in Milwaukee was uh, probably about a four or five mile long water park before there was ever a Wisconsin Dells. Uh, the, the water parks there lined with canoe clubs and swimming schools and beer gardens, and there was a, a water toboggan called Shoot the Shoots. Uh, so it was recreation as well as uh, industry and transportation. So yes, absolutely, Milwaukee was a city built on water. You've seen it close up. I have, uh, and not just Milwaukee. You know, sort of this is true of Wisconsin as well. For nine years, I was a part of a show called Around the Corner with John McGivern on Milwaukee PBS. And my job was to ride up on my bike. That was the shtick <laughs> every, for every episode. And we did 113 episodes all around the state of, state of Wisconsin. And my job was to essentially establish uh, kind of the, the history of each area and kind of the, the ethnic flavor, uh, the population, uh, the landmarks. So just in three minutes or less, because I would get cut if it was longer than that. And it was just striking. It became almost a, a, a running joke about the, the creation story of the vast majority of settlements of Wisconsin is based on water. And in most cases, it was uh, a dammable stream that provided a turbine for uh, cutting lumber, making flour, making textiles, uh, or, or transportation uh, along the lakes, uh, certainly. So, yeah, the water story in Milwaukee and Wisconsin is, is absolutely central. And the Milwaukee River is the, the dominant river, obviously, in the Milwaukee area. And there's probably several summers ago, my wife and my son and I, three of us, it wasn't a good idea to have three, three adults in a canoe. True, <laughs> so especially the, if you're talking in any shallow water. Right. And it does get, does get shallow. You know, certainly... Uh, it's it's a probably a, a class one class two stream you know in in the spring run uh, but in mid June the water begins to uh, the levels drop some and we scrape bottom quite a bit but it was it was a, a fascinating journey going from, from where to where exactly above Fiendsville down to downtown Milwaukee uh, so I think we were in the water for I'm not sure what the the total length was 18 miles something like that seven hours so we were we were there for the for a whole day. A couple of portages around dams? A couple. Uh, fewer today than in the, in the past. <laughs> they knocked one out? They knocked one out at the Esterbrook Park uh, above Capitol Drive. Uh, and that was a WPA project, a work relief project. Uh, and that was partly flood control, uh, but also uh, to kind of back up and make more recreational uh, kind of uh, opportunities uh, above that dam. So that one came out, and the one dam that was removed, uh, the most prominent one, was, was the North Avenue Dam, and that's what created 
uh, ahead for water to drive industry downstream and the lake above for recreation. It's, it's a Jekyll and Hyde. You know, it's just extreme contrast back in the, the years, up to about the 1930s. And they took that dam out, so there's now, that's the only true rapids on the, on the trip. And you get kind of about a shot, a class shot two, of adrenaline. Something like that? Maybe class two. With water sign, it might be class two. Yep. Which is plenty of excitement. But I have to ask, how much nature are you seeing if you're going uh, 18 miles on the Milwaukee River? You're seeing mostly nature. And it was kind of a revelation, uh, you know, from Milwaukee and have crossed that stream on virtually every crossing that it has probably hundreds of times over the years. And being on the river, uh, it's somewhat disorienting because you're off the grid and you're following this, this rather sinuous uh, trail into town. And bridges I'd crossed over, uh, I couldn't recognize them as, as I passed under because the, the context uh, had changed so radically. And we were seeing, we were seeing mink, we were seeing snapping turtles, you know, we were seeing fish. Uh, so it was uh, pretty much an, an, an undiluted kind of uh, interaction with nature. And then we finally realized that what's going on there, because it's floodplain, uh, what you're seeing is a scrim of, of green on both sides. So you, you can't see civilization in most cases from the river, but it's not that far away. Kind of a Potemkin River. <laughs> a, little, a, little, a little bit. So, so, so you have uh, a lack of development or a, the, no development whatsoever in places where it floods. So what that does is it preserves those 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 view sheds, uh, if you will, along the river. So it was kind of even in the heart of town, you know, the area from say around Capitol Drive south to downtown to around the North Avenue Bridge, uh, partly because the banks are steep. You know, that's that's parkland. Can't build on them, and it's the they call the Milwaukee River Greenway, which is roughly 900 acres of green space and I think about 12 miles of shoreline that is protected by easement, by public ownership, and by zoning. So uh, you're, you're a mile and a half from Milwaukee City Hall, and you've got this wonderful corridor of green space that is uh, walking and biking trails on both sides and also the river for uh, paddling. Uh, How's the, the water survey. quality? Not bad, not bad. You no, know, there's the goal of the revitalization folks is to have it swimmable. Uh, I think that's that's probably a little that's, that's aspirational <laughs> at this point. You wouldn't really want to fall out of your canoe. You wouldn't want to, uh, but talk about some of the changes there. Uh, before that Naf- North Avenue Dam came out, I think 90, 1997, uh, above the dam there were about three species of fish, and they were all variations on goldfish. You know, so now there are, I think, more than 40. Uh, so it's, and people are, you see them there in fall, you know, during the salmon run. You know, they're, they are, they are out there with their fly rods. So it's, it's a remarkable uh, transformation. You have uh, also some remarkable returns of wildlife, too. I would never have expected to see beaver in Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, they were the, the staple currency in the years of the fur trade, obviously, you know, when Solomon Juno was Milwaukee's trader. Uh, but this is probably, I don't know, five, six years ago, I was leading a, uh, a river tour. Uh, and you can do that now, too. You can kind of take, take a, a tour boat uh, along the Milwaukee River. There's a, lot, there's a lot to see there because so much of the history of Milwaukee is from, out, all from the, the way water out to, side. All the way out to the lake? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you've got uh, a couple of tour boats that do it on a regular basis, and you can charter your own. Uh, that's a lot of fun. I like taking taking river tours out. But we were out. We came all, all the way to Inner Harbor, and we were coming back upstream, and we hit where the Menominee River comes in, uh, south of Michigan Street. And just I began to notice, it was almost dusk, but there were these trees uh, leaning into the water. And I, I just happened to notice that they were falling down. And I looked more closely and said, you know, that looks like maybe animals may have dropped those. And I came back the next day or a couple of days later, and sure enough, there was beaver activity down there. And this is, this is right across from the Water Street bars in the Third <laughs> Ward, you know, so this, this, is, this is intensely urban. Uh, right next door to the Pritzloff, uh, the old hardware wholesaler that's now a, a very popular event space. Uh, so so it's, it's, again, a little scrim. It's kind of a little borderline of trees. I think they were uh, poplars. And the, the Postal Service parks its trucks in the lot 
I mean, right next to these trees. So this this is uh, certainly well-developed land. And began to do some research. Uh, and again, talking about the Milwaukee River Greenway, uh, north of North Avenue, uh, you have a colony of beavers there. The Greenway, as the the water quality has improved and the habitat has become more continuous, has become a magnet for beavers migrating from farther north. You know the area where it's where it's truly uh, undeveloped. So there, the, these 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 guys and gals are kind of they're, they're sort of cruising down the river and finding a place to land. Uh, they they are, they are bank lodgers. They they know they can't dam that river, so so they have lodges in the banks. And the story is uh, from the Urban Ecology Center, which is a, a, a great institution uh, that has sort of reclaimed Riverside Park on the, the east side of Milwaukee. Uh, they're putting an arboretum in uh, with funding from the Milwaukee Rotary Club. And there is that bank lodge right there in the arboretum, which I've described as uh, putting a couple of pyromaniacs in charge of a fireworks factory. <laughs> but they, they are learning to live uh, with the beavers. And the term they use is dispersers. So you have a colony there, and as the adolescents are kicked out, they have to find their own uh, their, uh, their own lodging. So the, the chances are good they've kind of drifted downstream and uh, set up housekeeping somewhere right in the heart of Milwaukee. Salmon, sturgeon, what kind of fish do you have then uh, with this uh, clearer Milwaukee River that will be returning to their upstream roots. Yeah, salmon certainly. Those are an, an import uh, that were brought into creative fishery, but also to control the alewife population, also imported. So you have an invasive prey, invasive predator. <laughs> the sturgeon is the return of a native, and that's a, that's a much, uh, certainly a powerful story. And it's a partnership between the River Edge Nature Center up in Ruberg and the Newburg and the DNR. And they raise uh, these fish in tanks, little fingerlings, and uh, they are imprinted with the, the water of the Milwaukee River. And they are released at an annual event called Sturgeon Fest down near the Milwaukee's lakefront. And I was down there. Uh, we put it in the, the Built on Water documentary. Uh, little fingerlings, uh, four or five inches long, and you, you release them. And sturgeon are among the most ancient fish there are, and one reason is that they uh, they spawn uh, only when they're 20 or 25 years old, uh, so that they're long-lived and uh, late bloomers <laughs> in, in some ways. Well, not using a lot of energy uh, for the first 20 years. <laughs> yeah, right. But they but they come back, and there are some some returnings now. There's a we use a photograph of a DNR technician uh, sturgeon, probably probably a three foot long sturgeon, you know, taken being taken out of the Milwaukee River. And what's so powerful to me uh, about the sturgeon story is that it's like planting a tree whose shade you will never enjoy. You know, the people who are in charge of that project, uh, people who are you know the volunteers on that project. Uh, they're, they're acting on the basis of faith that when those fish, at a time when we're probably gone, are old enough to spawn, they will come back to a river that is welcoming, you know, that is clean enough to support them and their generations. You know? So that's, that's, a, that's a powerful story. Yeah, it's a 20-year investment just to get the, first, uh, the next generation Absolutely. going. Absolutely. It's not history entirely because uh, these shipwrecks are still with us and we keep finding them and uh, making them more accessible mm -hmm. through technology. But there are a couple of famous ones in the Milwaukee vicinity. Yeah, the one that is probably the one that has a, the, the strongest uh, historical connection is the Lady Elgin. And this is a time in the run-up to the Civil War when Wisconsin was a, a home of uh, some strong, strong abolitionists, including Governor Alexander Randall, Camp Randall, uh, who was described himself as a fire-breathing abolitionist. And Congress had passed the Fugitive Slave Act back in 1850, and what that did was it gave enslavers the right to come onto northern soil to reclaim their enslaved people. And Very just, controversial. Oh, yeah. it, it incensed the abolitionists. And this is something that uh, is not as well known as it should be, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared that law unconstitutional. <laughs> which is kind of a role reversal, isn't <laughs> which, it? <laughs> which, which nobody else did. Uh, so as that happened, uh, Randall, uh, you have these volunteer militia companies. This is before the National Guard. Uh, these volunteer, they're, they're social, they're ethnic, uh, they're class. 
uh, but you had the, these militia units, and he said that, uh, you know, will you stand with me in case this comes to a confrontation? And the Union guards in Milwaukee, Irish, Democratic, Third Ward, said no. And he disbanded them and disarmed them, took their guns away. Uh, they were a voluntary group, so they could, he couldn't disband you know, the, the actual association. So they, they reformed and, with the help of a sympathetic congressman, uh, bought 80 government surplus muskets for two bucks apiece. So they rearmed themselves. Uh, that, was, that was quite a bit of money you know, back in, in 1860. So to help kind of cut those costs, they had a fundraising trip down to Chicago, um, the palace steamer, the Lady Elgin. And very simply, they spent the day kind of sightseeing and drinking and eating. Uh, they came back in the morning of, I think, September 8th. Uh, and their wives and children with them Wives in some and cases. kids. Yeah, there were about 400 people, you know, on that, on that boat. And just off Winnetka, Illinois, they were rammed by a lumber schooner. This is before, obviously, ship to shore, radar, any, any kind of... Uh, it was fog? No, it was not fog. It was just, just a storm. You know, it was a raging storm. Uh, and... The, the Augusta, the lumber schooner, uh, plowed a hole into the side of the Lady Elgin that was big enough to drive a team of horses through, as one passenger described it. And surprisingly, uh, the Augusta uh, was certainly damaged, but not fatally, and kind of limped into Chicago. And the Elgin sank. Uh, so you have the water comes in. This is, this is boilers. So the hits the boilers, puts, the, puts them out, and it broke apart. And people use whatever they could. If they hadn't been crushed by the wreckage or drowned in their, their staterooms, uh, they used you know, sort of doors or drawers or a bass drum you know, from the band to float to shore. And but they were, what, uh, several miles out? About four miles out, yep. And uh, pitch darkness, uh, terrible waves, uh, cold, you know, so, so terror-stricken. Now, this, this was just a horrific scene. And when they began to finally drift into shore and they could see, you know, the, the bluffs of Winnetka, uh, scant comfort because these breakers, you know, large breakers were kind of washing in. So people drowned in that surf. And one crewman got up to the, clambered up the bluff, uh, passed the word, and soon you had just this horde of, of you know, sight, sightseers, gawkers, and rescuers. There was a famous... Uh, uh, one of the students from Northwestern you know, came down there and risked his life to go out again and again and again, put a rope around his waist and went out and saved people and kind of brought him back in. Uh, so this was by far the, the worst tragedy, worst loss of life in the open waters of the Great Lakes in history. About 300 people died, uh, and the, the majority of them were, were Irish third warders, and that really kind of was a, a body blow to the Irish community and certainly uh, kind of... A, a, a tragedy kind of swept up in the tragedy of the Civil War. So it was all kind of related, all these layers of history going on. And that wreck was discovered or rediscovered back in the 1980s, and now it's, it's a dive site. And one of the things they found there was the muskets of the Union Guards, you know, you know, lying there in the muck. Even more famous, though not as catastrophic, the Christmas tree Shipwreck. Yeah, the Ralph Simmons, uh, and that was <laughs> that was a case of probably poor judgment. Uh, you know, you have uh, was Captain Shunemann uh, was from Chicago. This was the Christmas tree ship. It was a veteran lumber carrier, uh, so it had outlived uh, the span that was allotted to schooners back in those years, and. Uh, he was someone who's famous for bringing Christmas trees to the, the docks of, on the Chicago River. So, so Christmas meant you know, the Christmas tree ship, the Simmons coming in. And he pushed it. The captain kind of pushed it. And this is back before you have these pampered, groomed, uh, symmetrical trees. They go up to the UP, you know, up around uh, Manistique, that area. And they would just, <laughs> I guess they'd clear cut <laughs> some of the forest there. And they'd all be Charlie Brown trees for the most part, uh, but large and small. They cut boughs as well. And he came back to Chicago in a gale uh, and flying a distress flag. This is, again, you know, no, no radio, no radar. Uh, this is, what was the year, about 1912? or 19, what, what was it, Norman? It was kind of, it's in the, it's in the book, the turn, of the turn of the 20th century. Uh, so you have, you know, this, this boat's in trouble. Uh, the Coast Guard went out, couldn't see it, uh, went down, went down with all hands. Uh, so... As someone said for Chicagoans, Christmas wasn't the same, you know, without the, the Christmas tree, 
shipped at the uh, docking there, and just uh, it, was, it was kind of a, it was destination. You know, they kind of put trees in the rigging and boughs and the uh, kind of the the railings alongside. So it was a it was, it was a very festive boat. Uh, but he he was pushing his luck. You know, this is part of what's now the shipwreck sanctuary up around Two Rivers, you know, which is where the boat went down. And I think when the Historical Society archivists, archaeolo- underwater archaeologists went down, they said, huh, this was, you know, not a, not a structurally sound boat and kind of uh, pushing his luck beyond uh, the borders of what was acceptable. Well, that time of year, too, of course. Absolutely. The gales of November come early and all of that. Exactly, right. What would be your next uh, Milwaukee story? One of the things that I really enjoyed writing about is, is nature. And the, the pandemic was kind of grist uh, for a lot of writers' mills. And there's one story in here about the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic that has some uncanny uh, resemblances with what was going on here uh, in, the, in the last three years, you know, 2022. Uh, and there was a, a guy named Dr. George Ruland, who was the Anthony Fauci of Milwaukee Public Health back in those early years. In Milwaukee, they didn't use the term social distancing, uh, but it was the same thing. Wear masks, keep your distance, uh, avoid people who are sneezing, and keep your mind at ease. <laughs> Another one of the pieces good of, advice. of advice. So there's a story in there about that pandemic. Uh, but also, uh, there's an essay called Saner Outside, and the uh, Evers administration, when the pandemic was first its impact was obvious. It was uh, safer inside, but saner outside. I think is sort of the corollary of that. And during that first spring in 2020, I spent a whole lot of time, uh, virtually parts of every day, in a place near my home in Bayview called Seminary Woods. That is a very gracious remnant of the original hardwood forest, and observed the the progress of that season probably more closely than I have uh, any other uh, in my life. And the Saner Outside uh, essay kind of talks about the, the plants coming back to the forest floor, the birds returning, including the, the rollicking chorus of clowns that is the warbler migration uh, every spring, and kind of the uh, spending t- enough time there to see interactions uh, and kind of see behaviors, uh, you know, fox kind of chasing kinglets and then kind of bounding off into the forest when he saw me, you know, on what it described as the softest paws. Uh, and that it was a lot of fun to write, and one of the pleasures of writing for me, writing's hard, you know, I think it's, it's nothing but hard, uh, but one of the pleasures is having written <laughs> and coming back, and I read that essay, uh, and again, it was kind of, it brings me back, uh, it takes me right back to that, uh, that, that great experience in spring of 2020. Certainly a sign of good writing to take you to the time and place. Mm-hmm. Well, I... I hope so. We aspire. <laughs> it's been a very pleasant hour, John Gerda, hearing some of these Milwaukee stories and putting them into the big picture of time and change in Wisconsin's biggest city. Look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you, Norman. It's been a pleasure to be here. John Gerda is the author of Brewtown Tales, most recently. More stories from Milwaukee and beyond published in 2022 by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. I'm Norman Gilliland. I hope you can join me next time around for University of the Air.